0: Father, thank you for meeting us here as you are faithful to do in spirit and in truth. And thank you, Father, for moving the hearts of men and women tonight to raise up their voices and lift up their harms and to to seek for you both in music and in words that edify and draw our hearts to you. What a wonderful thing it is that you can take these simple parts of life like music and song and and a gathering of people, and just use it in such a miraculous way, Father. We thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, for the Word of God, something that to the outside world looks like nonsense, and even to those sometimes in the body can appear to be nothing more than words in a dusty book. But to those of us, Father, who have seen it for what it is, and have heard it, and felt it, and recognize the power of it in our own lives, Father. It is life itself, the bread of life, manna to our souls. We thank you, Father, that we may meet in a place and among others who share that love for you and your word, and we can be edified in that shared desire to learn. And, Father, we are thankful, so thankful that we live in a place and in a time when it is available to us and when we can study it freely. We know from your word, Father, that there may be a day in our future when that's no longer the way it is. So, Father, help us to bury this in our heart so that it is always there on our minds, even if the book itself is gone one day. Because your word, Father, will never go away. Even when the heavens and earth have passed, Father, your word will remain. And so, Father, we want it inside us, as part of us, so deeply that nothing can separate us from it, just as you tell us nothing can separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ. Prepare our hearts to hear it. Prepare our lives to reflect it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 10. Friends, we are in chapter 10. And as you know, we're learning in this chapter how Jesus wanted His disciples to serve Him in what I'm calling the kingdom program. He's begun preparing 12 men initially. There'll be more later. And these men are going to assume to lead, or assume responsibility to lead the church after Jesus' departure. These 12 and those who will join them later will come into a place of authority in the body and over a group of of people worldwide that they had no clue they would be entrusted to to, to shepherd. I mean, the, the magnitude of this mission is something they had no concept of at this point. They had no experience. We said this already. They've had absolutely no training for what they're going to be given. And yet, in a few years, the reality is going to hit them. As Jesus departs and as the church starts to form under their stewardship, they're going to have to fall back on two things, and not necessarily in this order. They're going to fall back on this training, but more importantly, they're going to fall back on the Spirit of God, who's going to lead them. Now, for us, we're in chapter 10, we're watching this preparation, the very earliest stages of it, and it's kind of fun to be a fly on the wall. You know, we're sitting here watching Jesus prepare these men And what's fun about it is remember, these are the guys who are eventually going to become our examples in the way that the church is represented through their writing. So whenever you read Peter or Paul or or John or even this gospel for that matter, remember you're learning from the very same men who you are now watching getting their first training in what it means to do the work of God. It's so reassuring, isn't it, to know that everybody starts their walk with Christ in basically the same way? We're all ignorant. We all need basic instruction. We're all going to take some mistakes along the way. I mean, these guys do their share. But by the grace of God, we grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what they did. That's what we're doing. And we're just doing it standing on their shoulders right now, looking at what they did in in their day. So as we go back into the study now of what Jesus did in equipping these men to serve Him as ambassadors for this kingdom program, I want you to remember this is also our preparation. Let's learn from them. And if you also remember, last week I explained that in the Bible, the concept of the kingdom, the term itself, develops over a series of stages, of four stages. I want to remind you of that right now because it's on the back of your bulletin if you want to look at it. But it's important to understand what I mean by this term because so many people, it seems, in our day and in the church, don't understand it. The first time you hear about a kingdom indirectly, in the Bible, is in the story of Abraham in Genesis, when God appears to him and says, through a promised covenant, that he would give to Abraham and to the descendants of Abraham an inheritance in a kingdom that would come in the future. Remember that. And then over the centuries that followed from Abraham's life, the kingdom remained a promise. Something that the world was waiting for. Something Israel was waiting for God to fulfill. When Christ came to Israel, when the Messiah finally arrived, He preached, as we've already studied, that the kingdom was at hand. In other words, He was telling Israel that God was now prepared to fulfill that promise. And in that moment, the kingdom concept changed. It went from a promise to something new. It became a proposal, which is to say, Jesus proposed to Israel they could have their kingdom. Now, as we're going to study in chapter 12, you know this is coming I've already warned you about this. In chapter 12, we're going to study that Israel is going to reject this proposal. And because they rejected Jesus, they refused to accept him as their king, well, then the proposal of the kingdom is taken off the table for a time from that generation of Israel. And now that the proposal has been rejected, the concept of kingdom will change yet again. And now, from proposal, it becomes a program. That's my terminology. The program of the kingdom. The program of the kingdom is the Lord preparing disciples who then prepare disciples who then prepare disciples and so on to go out into the world seeking citizens to join this coming kingdom. That's the program. In a future day, when that kingdom does arrive on earth as promised with Jesus here physically running the world, then those citizens will have been assembled, they'll be ready, and all of us will enter into the kingdom together on its first day. And on that day, the kingdom becomes a place, a literal, physical place. So the kingdom concept in the Bible is really a four-part story. It goes from promise, to proposal, to program, and ultimately to a place. And we sit today in that third step, just as the disciples did in Jesus' day, as they prepared to execute the kingdom program, to fulfill it. So, we are in the third stage, and because we are in the same stage that the disciples of Jesus were in following Israel's rejection of him, then that means we have the same mission they have, which means we need the same training they have, which means what we're studying here in chapter 10 at, and what will follow is a program for us as much as it is for them. Even if their role in the church is a little different, that being an apostle, for example, nonetheless, the core mission of the church is the same for every believer in the church, and that's what we're learning. What is that mission? It's the Kingdom Program. Now, last week I gave you an outline of what I find in this chapter under the heading of the Kingdom Program Training. And that outline also on the back of your bulletin. That outline has six parts. Last week we studied the first part, the objective. This week we obviously move forward from there to the message. In future weeks we're going to look at the method, the result, the mindset, and the cost. And these are just my own little terms. They help me stay focused. They keep me straight. Maybe they will you as well. So we'll keep using this outline. Last week when we studied the first part, the objective, I want to remind you what we learned. The kingdom program objective, Jesus told his disciples, was to find lost sheep. Now in his case, he said the lost sheep of Israel, because that was their initial focus. But for the church now, it's moved beyond Israel, it's to the whole world. So we're supposed to go out on a rescue mission, seeking hearts that God has already prepared to receive the gospel. We said last week, you cannot make someone accept Jesus. Because coming to faith in Christ requires, the Bible says, that a person be born again spiritually. And only the Spirit of God can grant new spiritual life to a person. So we can't do it. They can't do it to themselves. It's a God work. And so we understand our mission this way. As I used the analogy last week, it's like an Easter egg hunt. There's a simple way to understand it. We are searching for the person in the world that the Spirit has already prepared to receive our message, sort of like the way a child searches for an egg that they know is already out there waiting to be found. We go out, we find them wherever they may be, we collect them, so to speak. It's like a shepherd going out to pick up the lost sheep and carrying it home. That's what we are called to do. That's the objective of the church, if you will. Ultimately, at the end of the day, that's where the rubber hits the road. So that was the objective. Now we turn to the second part. The second part in our six-part outline. And this is now the message that we are called to bring. And in many cases, you might have assumed, well, this is pretty straightforward. I know what the message is. Well, let's see what Jesus said. What's the message you bring to a lost sheep? Verse 7. He says, as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, well, we're going to stop there, which I think is a bit of a betrayal of our name, because our name is verse by verse, but we're only going to do verse. <laughs> and I know you're thinking, well, I figured you'd stretch it, Steve. But no, seriously, there's a lot here. There's a lot. Here. In fact, there's so much here, I have to divide it out. There's three parts to this verse, forming, I guess, a three-part message, which I'm loath to give, but it happens to be the way it goes today. We have a three-part message three components. There are actually three things he's asking us to do that are in the context of the message. First, he says, you need to understand the circumstances of your message. Secondly, you need to understand the calling of the message. And then third, you need to understand the content. So let's go through them one at a time. First, he says, here are the circumstances of your message as you go. Now, I want you to notice first what he didn't say. He didn't say, should you go? should you go, here's what you say. Nor did he say, "Eh, if you go, or if the mood strikes you to go, as you can see, the point is, he says, as you go. In other words, the kingdom program expects that we share the message constantly. Constantly. Everywhere you go, everyone you meet. No exceptions. Except perhaps for certain situations in which it's not a good witness if there could be such a thing but generally it's as you go now he did not notice he did not tell his apostles in this particular case as he sends them out he didn't tell them which towns to go to he didn't tell them which roads to take and there, here's the point you could go on and on right he didn't tell them to do a lot of things why not because it doesn't matter it doesn't matter there are lost sheep everywhere in the context of missions we always think about other places right We live in a city of about 2 million people, give or take. I would say if you're generous, 20% of them are true born-again believers. I think that's high. Way high. But I'm just going to be generous for a minute. 20%. All right, look. You have somewhere over a 1.5 million people in this city that don't know Jesus. Now, if you want to go across the world to minister to someone and God's called you to do it, you should go. But you don't have to. As you go, you can reach lost sheep. As these men went along their way, Jesus knew they were going to encounter people all the time. And it's in those everyday moments that the church actually accomplishes its mission. I like to say that ministry is what you do while you're waiting for your next mission trip. Right? And what I mean by that is it's a way of saying the kingdom message is not reserved just for special moments like the mission trip. It's not intended just for certain people living in dark jungles on the other side of the earth. It includes everyone everywhere all the time. The soccer mom standing next to you at practice, the the cubicle mate at your office, the the person sitting next to you on the plane, your neighbor in the neighborhood. I mean, that's a lost sheep potentially, right? Furthermore, the kingdom program disciple does not keep office hours. You follow what I'm saying? You're not on duty sometimes and then off duty when it suits you, right? You don't just share Jesus on Sundays or in the soup kitchen when you volunteer. Those are the obvious times. That's not the only time. Your life mission, my life mission as a disciple of Christ, as someone who's been saved by grace through faith alone, that's everyone, that mission is to share the news of the King and His coming kingdom every moment of your daily life, which is what, as you go, means. We are ambassadors for Christ. So that means we're supposed to be bold. We're supposed to have this this instinct that says, I'm here to share the gospel. Where's my best opportunity now? Virtually anywhere. Jesus says, as you go, because here's what he wants to remind you and me, and it's, it's something we need to be reminded on. The whole point of us living here at all, after we've been saved, is to do this. Have you ever thought about that? Why, after someone is saved, why doesn't God just take our life then and bring us to heaven? Isn't that better? Right? I mean, wouldn't that be the, the better thing if you could choose, right? Let's just be done with this. Let's go. Why does he leave you here? As you go. That's why you're left here for any length of time at all, as a witness. Perhaps you're thinking, well, I know that's true, Steve. I mean, I'm, I could have seen this coming. But it's hard for me to share the gospel. I'm, I'm shy. I'm afraid of rejection. To which I would say, I'm sorry, Toby, it's your job. <laughs> No, but seriously, I I know there are people who are shy. I know there are people who feel awkward in these circumstances. I'm sure we all have a certain dislike of, of rejection, right? But you know what else is funny? And if you're honest with yourself, you'll agree with this. I'll bet you there are some topics that you willingly and even boldly share with strangers. I have met Christians who are quicker to share some new herbal remedy or some new business opportunity than they ever share the gospel with anyone. I think it's because we know that those things that we want to share, like remedies and like... It's because we know, at least we believe, that it's going to help them. We believe it's good for them. We believe it'll help them. We want them to have what we have. We have a heart to share this good stuff with somebody else, and so we we have a genuine interest in, in doing the right thing, right? So why do you hesitate to share the kingdom? Here's my answer. I think it's because we've lost sight of the objective. Remember in our outline, we're on step two, we're on the message. But remember the first step, the objective? What's our objective? Finding lost sheep, not turning goats into sheep. So Jesus does the saving, we don't. Which means you do not need to worry about the outcome. It's not on you. It's not on you. You're not responsible for the outcome. You're not accountable for the outcome. It doesn't reflect on you. That's between them and God. You know not everyone will want your herbal remedy. You know that not everyone is going to invest in your business. And you can likewise know not everyone is going to agree with the gospel. Get over it. Because you know it's true. But here's the thing. Here's what you don't know. You don't know who the lost sheep is. You can't see them coming, friends. It's not like they have a halo on and a name tag that says, Hello, I'm Steve. Bah! That's not how it works. So, if you're going to find them, I mean, isn't this self-evident? If you're going to find them, you know they're out there. God's told you they're out there. This isn't some cosmic, practical joke on God's part. He didn't send us out to find things that aren't there. So, if we know the sheep are out there, God is in the hearts of people now, working to prepare them for the gospel. If you know that's true, you should be willing to share the good news as you go with everyone, because it's the only way you'll find any of them. It's the whole Easter egg analogy all over again, right? In an Easter egg hunt, kids go out into the yard looking because they know that there are eggs there. If they didn't think there were eggs there, they wouldn't go. What if a child on Easter day sat on the porch looking out over their yard at the time of the hunt? They didn't go out, they just sat, and they tried to guess in advance where the eggs were. And they just sat there kind of thinking, well, I can check, now. I don't want to check that. That's probably not, no, maybe that one. Will, you know, And they just sat there for a while, right? They're not going to find many that way, obviously. What if the child said, well, even if I go, I'm afraid of failure. Even if I go, I can't bear the thought of, of looking and then not finding what I'm looking for. How many eggs are they going to find under those circumstances? I mean, you see the point, right? They're not worried about looking. Because if they don't find it here, they'll just look somewhere else and they don't feel like that hurt them. That doesn't reflect on them. It didn't make them feel bad. It's part of the process do you see how much your outlook on this changes how you approach it the very reasons that i think kids search so hard and eagerly for for easter eggs is because they understand the success in that task does not depend on their ability it depends on persistence how good do you have to be to look for an easter egg i mean how much competence does that require compared to say making an egg Right, so who 's making the sheep it 's God? How much confidence do you need to find one isn 't it really about availability and not ability? I think we just should just think about evangelism a lot more like a kid. The sheep are out there, the more places you look, the more you 're going to find them period and if you 're worried about embarrassment when a conversation goes sideways or somebody gets upset or you know you don 't get the result you want, well, just remember. You're not responsible for that outcome. God appointed that outcome. So here's another way to look at it. In fact, this is the spiritually mature way to look at those moments. God, what did you want me to learn from this experience? What was I given? You you brought me to this person. You had me give what I gave. You did not bring that person to an acceptance in my hearing. Maybe it will happen later. Maybe something else will happen. But for now, it didn't happen. And yet you wanted me to do it anyway. Okay, so what am I to learn from this? And there'll be some good outcome in that. Just declare the good news in everyday circumstances of life as you go and leave the results to God. That's the circumstances. And Jesus says the circumstances are as you go, which leads us now to the second element of the message, and that is the, the, the calling of the message, as I call it. Notice Jesus says we are to preach our message. Don't run past that. We are to preach. I think it's fair to say, by the way, most of us don't think of ourselves as preachers. Right, Because we don't do this. We don't stand up here on a a, a church service behind one of these things and do what I do. And so as a result, if you come across something like this, you might assume, oh, well, he says preach. He must only be talking to the pastors. He's only talking to the evangelists, the missionaries, the professionals. They're the ones who have to declare the kingdom message. And if you think that, and you'll know you'll think that if you do this. Here's your test. You assume that your job is to bring unbelievers to this building so that I can save them. You've got that neighbor, that friend, you know they need Jesus, and you're like, Man, just come to church with me. Why don't you just say, Come to Jesus with me? Right? Why are we deferring to someone else to do that? Why are we not willing to just have a conversation with someone? Well, because we feel uncomfortable, we feel unsure, we don't understand Friends, you don't save them, God does. You just have to share the message. And the style of speaking that God asks of us in the proclamation of the truth is preaching. Now the word preach in Greek could actually just be translated proclaim. It's the same word in Greek. And it does not refer to a certain activity that takes place on church Sunday. Preaching is simply this. It is the proclaiming of a truth in a direct manner that calls upon the audience to agree and take action. That's what preaching is. It's a style of speaking. And it can be done before a crowd, from a pulpit, or it can be done to a single individual in a private moment. It's a style of approach. And you may not realize it, but I'm here to tell you, you probably preach a lot more than you think you do. And your spouse can confirm that for me. For example, if you advocate for a a particular political view around the dinner table, you're preaching. If you extol the virtues of some new diet to your best friend, you're preaching. If you champion a social cause on social media, you're preaching. Why are they all preaching? Because in every case, you're stating a truth, at least as you see it, and in a direct fashion, hoping to win agreement, and calling someone to join you in some sense, to come to action in some sense. That's what you're doing, right? It's not just informative discussion. You're trying to move someone's heart somewhere. I would also add, by the way, that good preaching involves... A degree of passion. It involves a personal investment in the outcome. You have skin in the game. You care how it goes. You care about them. You don't want them to fail in this. You have a reason you're telling them what you're telling them, right? And as a result, you're not dispassionate about it. It's not like, oh, FYI, Jesus. (laughs) Right? There's something on the line here a soul. And a good preacher. Again, I'm not talking about this job, I'm talking about the style of speech. Good preaching cares about the topic, and you believe that it's in your audience's best interest that they would agree with you. Now, I want you to take a note here of what Jesus did not say again. Because Jesus chose the word preach, but he did not choose any number of other terms that have become vogue in the church. Preaching, I think it's fair to say, is out of favor. Both up here and in general. Right? We have this... I guess politically correct culture now where you know we want tolerance, not passion, and, and absolutism is out, right? Everything's relative now. So we're not supposed to intrude into people's blissful ignorance with our truth. The world's taught everyone now that you can believe whatever you want, and that's truth to you, and the rest of us need to affirm you in that thought. All right, that has led some in the church, I think, to move off target from what Jesus is saying here. We've moved away from preaching the truth, and we've moved toward to be kind, more subtle ways of sharing the gospel. So we try to make the kingdom message more, you know, inclusive and palatable and non-threatening. And, and so we soften that call to repentance and we just sort of drop that whole part. We don't want to push too hard for agreement. We don't want to alienate anybody in the process. You know, that kind of stuff. The way I think of it is like, we want to sneak up on them with the gospel. You know, kind of get it from the side. And before they know it, oh, there's the gospel. And they didn't see it coming. But friends, that's not what Jesus said. He did not say, offer them the gospel. He did not say, discuss the gospel. He did not say, share the gospel. He did not say, invite someone to come to church so they might hear the gospel. You can do those things too. That's not the message of the kingdom program. He said, preach the gospel. And here's why he said that. Because he knew you cannot sneak up on someone with the gospel. It just doesn't work. And here's the other thing you forget. Sooner or later, if you're going to get to the content of the real gospel, if you're actually going to lay it out for them, sooner or later, you're going to offend them. All, all the sneaking up stuff does is delay it. Because if you ever get to it, that is to say, if a person has to come to realize they are not okay with God the way they are, and that they stand condemned before a holy and just God because of their sin... And as a result, you have to tell them, God has made a way for you and for all men, all men and women, that their sin may be forgiven if they receive the truth of the Messiah Christ who died in their place on a cross. Right? That's the gospel message. There is no polite way to share that truth. I mean, you can be rude, I guess, but what I'm saying is, even in your best efforts, if you cover those points and you get them straight with somebody, they are going to understand you're saying they're not okay. And they're understanding that you're saying they're going to hell. And you're saying to them that unless they change their mind, there's no hope for them. You understand? You're saying things to people that offend people unless they're a lost sheep. In which case, they won't run. They'll fall to their knees. And you don't know what they're going to do before you share it, but you're not in a position to alter your methodology, hoping you can find a way to get them somewhere God's not taking them. It won't work. Peter says this, I love the way Peter puts this, in 2 Peter 1.16, he says, We did not follow, speaking about himself and the other men, who we are watching being trained right now, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And then a couple verses later in 2 Peter 1.19, he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts in a nutshell here's what Peter said he said we didn't make up fanciful stories we didn't make the story of Jesus fun and whimsical and easy and Happy and you know all that nonsense, he says, We came to you knowing that what we brought was power and glory. We brought a message of the coming of Jesus Christ to save souls, and that's all you need. He brought power because that's the message. And then he adds to the church, he says, And you would do well to pay attention to that same calling to preach the word. Because it's a light into dark places. Do you know what you do if you try to take preaching and turn it into negotiation or some soft sell? It's as if you take that light that God has given us to take into a dark place and you just turned it down a notch. You just softened the light. Nice little glow there. won't offend anybody. Yeah, but you know what else won't happen? They won't understand it. Now look, we have the kingdom program message to be preached. We're not to be rude. We're not to shove it down someone's face. We're not, you know, There's a sensitivity here. We're not supposed to just be completely without sensitivity. But passion is not the opposite of sensitivity. Earnest concern for the person, a call to response, is not the same thing as being rude. We're supposed to do more than casually converse about Jesus over coffee. We're supposed to have passion like Paul did. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul said this. He says, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. And then he says, we beg you on behalf of Christ... Be reconciled to God. Have you ever begged someone to be reconciled to God? I bet there's some in here who have. Maybe with family members. Maybe on someone's deathbed. You don't have to wait till someone's on their deathbed. Proclaim what you know boldly, knowing you have been entrusted with a message from God that comes with spiritual power to save souls. And after you have preached it, call that person to respond affirmatively, you know, as a salesman would say. Ask for the business. Don't leave it hanging. Look, if you can be bold about politics, if you can be bold about diets and all the rest, you can be bold about Jesus. It matters more. That's the calling of our message. And then finally, Jesus gives us the content. He says, the kingdom is at hand. Now, perhaps you were expecting something more. I think that's fair, right? What about repent? What about believe in Jesus? What about the rest of the gospel account? Isn't that supposed to be part of our message? Well, in effect, that's included here. Because what Jesus is doing and saying the kingdom is at hand is he's speaking in shorthand. Remember, we learned last week that Jesus was directing his apostles here back in verse 6 to go to the Jew, not to the Gentile, not to the Samaritan, at least not for now. And so at this point in the kingdom program, they're going out exclusively to a Jewish audience, a first-century Jew living in Palestine. And that person would have understood this message Unequivocally, The kingdom is at hand. Every Jew knew what that statement meant. It meant the Messiah, the one promised, has come and he is ready to set up his promised kingdom. There was only one kingdom in the Jewish mindset and there was only one kind of king for that kingdom and they understood it instinctively. So for these men, at this point in history, this was actually a succinct way to express the gospel. And those who received it were lost sheep coming to know their Lord. Now, of course... Jesus naturally anticipated that as they said this phrase a conversation would ensue right that's natural that's what we would expect some Jews would just have ignored the proclamation and said oh you guys are crazy but then there's others who were not goats but actually lost sheep who would have heard the message and say tell me more where is this king where is this kingdom Ask questions and the like. That's the natural expectation of the message. He's not telling you or me or anyone else, say only this phrase and say nothing more. But what he is saying is, get the content right. The point is, he directed them to issue a clear, unambiguous proclamation that the Messiah had come for Israel. And no, we, we don't live in Israel in first century Palestine. We don't have the same audience. We don't, therefore, have exactly the same wording. We have a different audience, a different time. So naturally, our proclamation is going to be worded differently. You're not going to say, the kingdom of God is at hand, because in actual fact, it's not in the same sense. He was saying that because they were getting a proposal. We're we're saying it in the sense that it's coming in the future. So it's a little different even in that regard. In fact, depending on who you're talking to, you may not say anything about a kingdom at first non-jews most gentiles don't know anything about the kingdom a lot of church people don't know a lot about the kingdom at this point so we might word our proclamation in ways that are more familiar to our audience i mean i can just make up one as an example we might proclaim jesus as savior the one who god sent to die in our place the one who takes the penalty for our sins right i mean you know this this is our content then having given that declaration that content we might turn to the person and say accept this good news place your faith in jesus he'll include you in the kingdom when he comes now on the other hand if you're speaking to someone who's never been in church never been around the church uh you're probably gonna have to start further back in scripture you might even go all the way back to genesis you might have to explain to them what sin is i had a conversation with one guy one time about jesus and he didn't really understand this at the time i just launched right into christianese i got about halfway through it and he goes what is sin i don't even understand what you're talking about What do you do with that? You're like, okay, wait a minute. Okay, I, I don't know where to go with this. Well, where you go is Genesis 3. You go back to the beginning, you know, and you have to walk them through it. And on the other hand, if you're talking to a Muslim or if you're talking to a Buddhist or whoever, you might have to take an entirely different approach, right? This is contextualizing the content in terms of style, in terms of approach. But listen, and listen carefully, please. In all cases, the content of your kingdom program message is always the same. The content is always the same. Whatever words you choose, whatever point of reference you use, what your message says is, the kingdom is coming soon, Jesus is your king, receive him, because he died in your place. Something in that sense, right? The kingdom message. Jesus did not give us liberty to change that message. We do not have liberty to come up with our own content, to substitute our own message. The message of the kingdom program is once and always that the gospel of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins to give us eternal life is the program message of the kingdom, right? That, that, that is never going to change. Now, I want to be absolutely clear here. I want to tell you what it's not because that'll help, I think, frame for you what it is. What is the message not? And hear my heart on this too because I know there are people out there who may misunderstand this and they're not doing it with any intent to harm, but they may not have it right. If you proclaim that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you are not preaching the kingdom message. I'm sorry. If you preach to someone that they can have their best life now, you are not preaching the kingdom message. If you proclaim God wants to heal your body, if you proclaim that God wants to take away your emotional pain or bring you wealth or give you happiness, you are not preaching the kingdom program message. If you say to someone, God wants you to come to church, God wants you to be part of a small group, God wants you to hear relevant messages about your life from a life coach that comes on stage and gives a three-point message and has great jokes, you are not preaching the gospel message. You're not preaching the kingdom message. You have changed the content. You've tried to make it more palatable. You've given them something easier to agree with than the gospel, which is what they need to agree with. You made yourself feel better at their eternal expense, Perhaps. I'm not saying you're responsible for their eternal future, but I am saying you're responsible for what you do with it in the moment. And now, some of those other things I said, they may be perfectly fine things to say at other times and to someone who's already accepted the gospel, but they are not a substitute for preaching the gospel to someone who doesn't know Jesus. And the reason those things are not suitable as content for your kingdom message is because they do not save souls, pure and simple. That's why they're not good. They do not turn unbelievers into believers. And I would go a step further. I would tell you that they don't turn believers into disciples. What those messages tend to do, and others like them, is they feed our ego because they make us feel good when the person accepts what we say. They fill our church buildings because it's a much easier message to respond to. It doesn't ask anything of the person for the most part. And in the end, they obscure the truth. Where you find the kingdom program message diluted in this way, you will find unsaved and undiscipled people. The irony is this. When an unbeliever should happen to agree with one of these vapid, unbiblical proclamations, do you know the irony? They are actually getting their best life now. Because when they die, it's all downhill. Because unless you accept the gospel message, this is the best your life will ever be. But if you accept the gospel message, this is the worst it will ever be. That's the message of the kingdom program, friends. And if this is convicting at all, don't take it as a kind of punitive message. Take it as correction so that you can get on track because you've got time left. You've got sheep out there. God's still helping move you through a process of growth. And what He wants is better things. The message is, One that convicts and exposes sin, makes clear you're not okay apart from Christ, that you need grace, you need mercy, you need forgiveness, and it's available through the blood of Christ. That's what you're out there to tell people. And you get there through a variety of different ways of saying it. But you can't change it. That message has power. That message gives spiritual life. That message makes difference in eternity. The other ones make you feel good now. Friends, that's the process of what we're supposed to do when we go out into the kingdom program. What we have been given, what we have been entrusted with, is a message that is not reserved for just a few people. It's for everyone, every day, and it's as you go. And it is a message you cannot soften, you cannot talk around it, you have to preach it boldly. With sensitivity, yes, but not in such a way that you obscure it. It is the power to save souls. And the message was formed for our benefit by a God who has prepared it to find lost sheep. If you swap anything that Jesus has asked us for something you in your own wisdom thinks is a better method, you may very well win more converts than you would have if you had stuck to Jesus' message. But here's the thing. You have one people to yourself, not to Christ. You will fill buildings with those kinds of converts, but you're supposed to fill the kingdom with lost sheep. It's a different program. I asked you last week as we ended the objective piece that you might go out thinking about it in the week you had ahead of you and that you might think about the fact that you're trying to find lost sheep and I wanted you to try to see everyone as a potential convert. You know, Thinking about the problem that way, if you will. Thinking about the mission that way. And just trust God with the outcome and try to use those moments for eternal purposes. And now I'm going to ask you to do the same thing again, but you're just a little better armed now than you were last week. Now I'm saying, remember your circumstances as you go. Remember your calling. I'm here to preach this in a powerful way. And remember the content. It's about Jesus. Don't be afraid to share that message, friends. God saves. You're just the messenger. But I, I encourage you to do this. Dare God to show up you know, in the healthiest sense of that. I'm saying, dare him to show up. Say, you know what, God, I'm going to talk to 10 people today. Show me a believer in there. Show me a lost sheep. I dare you to let me have that today. That may not be the best way to say it to God, but if you get in trouble for saying it that way, don't come looking at me, okay? Just open your mouth as you go. You know what? Here's my prediction. I'll give you two predictions. Number one, it's not going to be as bad as you thought. Those moments won't go as badly as you think they will. Maybe most of them will just go to nothing, but they won't be bad. And here's the second prediction. Watch how it feels when you find the believer. I predict this again. You're going to say, Really? Are you sure? Is, could this be that easy? Did you just accept the gospel? What do, I, what do I do now? Right? Bring him to church. But the point is, you're going to find the two things work in harmony. It's just like dead, 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 dead. All of a sudden, Oh yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Really? You found a lost sheep. God did the work. Declare the kingdom is at hand. Jesus is the king. The kingdom is coming. He's almost here. And he died to bring you into it. And when that day comes, and here's the thing I like to think about. When you think about the kingdom and where it's going and where you're going to be and how it's going to arrive, think about this detail. You're going to walk the streets of the kingdom, which is on this earth again. It's back here on this earth. You're going to walk the streets of this kingdom. You're going to encounter people that came into the kingdom because God used you to find them. And that's going to be a moment where you both get to have a little bit of a laugh. God used you to save me? And you're going to say, yeah, and can you believe it? I almost didn't talk to you. If you hadn't hit my car on the way out of the parking lot, I wouldn't have thought to say anything. I mean, you know how those moments come, right? Is this encouraging a little bit? Is it Because it's meant to be. You know, the Scripture is meant to be encouraging. Jesus wasn't giving these guys an impossible task. He was trying to make it as easy as He could. As you go... Preach the message. It's our calling. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, thank you for an encouraging message that tells us we can do what the impossible requires. We can simply share a message that has power to save that we have no power to do on our own. We can do it boldly because we know, Father, that you have intended that it would reach some, and it matters not for our own sake if it doesn't reach anyone. We were simply obedient. And we thank you, Father, that you have constructed the message in such a simple form where it's all laid on Christ's shoulders and not our own. It asks nothing of the person in terms of their works. It puts everything squarely on you where it belongs. How much easier could our task be? And for that reason, Father, in our own hearts, we seek forgiveness for the days and the weeks and the years we've lived in which we have not made this our priority. You forgive us And you forgive us unquestionably and unendingly by the blood of Christ. We know that. But you do ask us to live differently. And so, Lord, I pray that what we've heard tonight would, would make this church a church that seeks for lost wherever we encounter them, as we go, preaching a message that you've designed so that you receive all the glory that you deserve when a heart is drawn to you, as will happen. And, Lord, as we collect these sheep, as you appoint them to salvation and bring them into our fold, I pray, Father, that we would never take that glory from you, but that we would increase it all the more by serving them diligently. Thank you, Father, for a year of preaching, and we pray for many years to come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.